Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. President Trump gave a speech in New Hampshire, putting the region's opioid crisis on the front page. Many working on the front lines of this crisis are suffering too, and they're starting to get help. If I can talk to one person and have them leave here with a smile, then I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. This week, the challenge of compassion fatigue. We'll also check in on young people finding new lives in Connecticut after fleeing Hurricane Maria six months ago. And the fate of a booming lobster industry might be tied to a declining whale population. The industry is in jeopardy. As the population continues to decline and pressure is put on the government to do something about it, then they're going to turn to closures. Plus, tensions are high in a liberal college town. Democratic institutions, democratic norms are being actively subverted. We'll step inside a battle over the future of town meeting. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. President Donald Trump has declared opioid abuse a national health emergency. But that's not news to the people of New Hampshire, where the death rate from overdose is twice the national average. That's why Trump chose Manchester, New Hampshire, to deliver a speech about the national opioid epidemic this past week. He promised tougher sentences for those who sell drugs, saying the Department of Justice will be seeking the death penalty for major offenders. But he also praised members of the recovery community and first responders who are dealing firsthand with the effects of this crisis. We see... This American heart in the men and women who fight every day to help rescue their fellow citizens from the grips of addiction. These are the courageous souls who remind us that for America, there is nothing beyond our reach, nothing at all. As NHPR's Paige Sutherland reports, this group is starting to get more attention for the impact the crisis is having on them. Jim Roberg has been answering the state's 911 calls for eight years. For the past few years, he's taken calls on drug overdoses at what feels like a constant rate. I mean, I would probably say 100, maybe 200, something like that. I mean, there's, I couldn't even begin to tell you. These calls may only take a few minutes, but Roberg says what he hears on them sticks with him. The overdoses are are very hard to deal with because it's it's so emotional and just having to hear a mother crying over her not breathing child and being able to try to help that person and then not know if they made it or not and sometimes that just gets to be way too much it's hurt his sleep and his relationship with his fiance he's even organizing a peer support group to help his colleagues in the same situation I think that there's been, for a long time, a stigma of, you guys just answer the phone. Like, you don't see anything, you don't, why do you need this? And I think that's what really needs to change, because, like I said before, imagination's a crazy thing. What I can't see, I'm going to picture in my head. What Roberg is describing here has a name. It's called compassion fatigue. 
and officials in the field, like Deb Pendergast, says it's an increasing problem for first responders across the board. Compassion fatigue is less about a specific incident. Say you respond to a fatal fire, for example, or a fatal motor vehicle collision. There's one specific incident that causes you that stress, both psychological and physical. Compassion fatigue is more of a burnout from a number of incidents or a number of patients. Pendergast directs the state's Fire Academy and Emergency Medical Services. For the past year, she's been offering compassion fatigue training to first responders across New Hampshire. She says her office has received an influx of calls in recent months from departments wanting to know the signs and how to treat it. Symptoms include trouble sleeping, difficulty focusing, mood swings, and lack of empathy on the job. But the biggest hurdle, Pendergast says, is getting first responders to acknowledge there's a problem. The mind of the, you know, the real tough firefighter or a tough EMT, I think we need to get away from that, that, you know, we got to stop seeing ourselves as Wonder Woman and Superman, and we've got to really sort of realize that we are human and these things do affect us, and, and we, we are the only ones that can control, um, you know, healing ourselves. In Nashua, the fire department recently held a training to help those dealing with the strain. We're going to do two things today. One is just a little bit on compassion fatigue, and this is more of an open discussion. I've got a few things to present. Firefighter Lieutenant Glenn Telgen says the number of overdoses he's responded to have really worn on him, especially treating the same person over and over, some even in the same day. You know, depression, bad attitude, you know, shortness with my kids. And and we don't even know we're doing it. You know, it's not like we're trying to do it. We're not trying to go home and be miserable. Last year, under the Safe Stations program, Nashua saw nearly 1,300 people walk into the city's fire stations looking for substance abuse help. Telgen is a fan of the program, but says there needs to be some follow-up with the patients, just to show the firefighters that they're making a difference. No one will ever argue if you had to deal with 500 safe stations and you had two that got on the right path. That's worth it. It's worth it to us. Even We even know that. But we don't necessarily always see that side, you know? But for us just to keep taking the beating, and, and by beating I mean they, they all hours of the night, all hours of the weekends. I met Deirdre Borsheski at a similar training in Dover. She's in long-term recovery and works with people seeking sobriety. Expectation that we can be immersed in suffering and loss daily and not be touched by it is as unrealistic as it's... When her boss, John Burns, went over the symptoms of compassion fatigue, Borsheski nodded along. Borsheski says she's had to learn she's not Wonder Woman. And for her own health, she can't try to be. A lot of it for me is not setting myself too high as far as like, okay, today I'm going to go to work and I'm going to help 20 people and they're all going to come back the next day. Like, that's just crazy. But if I can come in and maybe talk to one person and have them leave here with a smile, then I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Borsheski says she's going to start focusing on her own health more. Go to the gym, eat healthier. But as for the job, she says she still plans to come to work the next day, and the one after that, as long as she feels needed. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Paige Sutherland. Let's go back to that speech by President Trump in Manchester, New Hampshire. ICE recently arrested 15 MS-13 gang members. These are not good people, folks, okay? These are bad, bad people. They don't use guns. They'd rather use knives because it's more painful, and it takes longer. These are bad people. 
This isn't the first time he's called out the MS-13 gang and its presence in neighboring Massachusetts. Critics have said Trump uses the gang, which was started in California by immigrants from El Salvador, as a way to promote his strict immigration policies. Rumors about MS-13 seem to have taken hold in the central Massachusetts town of West Brookfield, three weeks after the murder of a local family. 38-year-old Sarah Bermudez and her three children, 8-year-old Madison, 6-year-old James, and 2-year-old Michael, were found dead inside their home. But since their deaths were ruled homicides, little additional information has been released to the public. And in the absence of updates, many people in town are looking for answers and facing the fear of the unknown. Shannon Dooling has more. On the West Brookfield website, the community refers to itself as a quintessential New England town. And by many accounts, it is. The town common is situated between churches and historical homes. And there's a seasonal farmer's market and a summer concert series at the town bandstand. But for the last few weeks, a number of the town's 3,000 or so residents have been on edge. The unknown is the scary part. You don't hear about these things in in West Brookfield. You know, we don't hear about this. Never. Denise Smith is sitting in a booth at Northeast Pizza on Route 9, waiting for her meal. From the parking lot of the pizza place, you can see the Bermudas family home, with its blue shutters and two-car garage. That's where Sarah Bermudez, who lived in town for several years, and her three young children were found murdered three weeks ago. A few days later, the Worcester County DA's office asked for the public's help in locating a yellow fuel canister. Since then, there's been no additional information released to the public. Smith says she's taken some precautions in the meantime, but she's not exactly sure what to be looking for. I'm alone, doors are locked, and if I see anybody that doesn't look right, I'm calling. I'm calling the police. I'm, I'm sorry. When you don't know, is there somebody still out there? And and if there is, what's their motive? And where could they be? On a community Facebook page, there's a struggle playing out among some townspeople, trying to balance a fear of the unknown with a respect for the family's privacy. There are posts urging neighbors not to speculate and instead to support the Bermudas family through memorials and fundraisers. A GoFundMe page has raised more than $17,000 to support Moses Bermudez, Sarah Bermudez's husband and father of Madison, James, and Michael Bermudez. Moses Bermudez grew up in the West Brookfield area and met his wife Sarah in her native El Salvador, the country where Moses's father was born. Moses and Sarah Bermudez started their family in El Salvador and, after living briefly in California, moved back to Massachusetts, Back at Northeast Pizza, Smith says the entire community is shaken and anxiously awaiting to hear more from the authorities. They need to give the public a little bit to go on because that's when the rumors start. And then you don't know, okay, I just heard this. Is that a rumor or is that true? The circumstances of the case, coupled with the lack of official updates, have led many in the community to fill in the gaps on their own. 22-year-old Jonathan Ela works at George's Pizza in the center of town. The only rumors I've really heard that it could be possible gang activity or something to that extent, but other than that, that's really all I've heard. There hasn't been really a lot of information about anything lately, and 
just leaves you on edge, like if it's going to happen again. Or The Bermudez family ties to El Salvador and California seem to have generated the speculation in the community about gangs, specifically a Salvadoran-based gang, MS-13, which originated in California. President Donald Trump has made combating MS-13 violence in the U.S. a priority, and he's quick to mention the gang by name in the national media. But a law enforcement source with knowledge of the investigation tells WBUR there is no evidence suggesting MS-13 involvement in the murders at this time. Reached briefly by phone, Moses Bermudez said he has no comment right now. His family has said he was working in California as a longshoreman when the murders occurred. West Brookfield Chief of Police Thomas O'Donnell says he understands there is tension in the community, but assures the town that state police detectives are casting a wide net and doing everything they can to provide some answers. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Shannon Dooling in Boston. It's been six months since Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, causing thousands of families to flee the island to resettle in New England. Many of those families were first greeted at Hartford, Connecticut's Hurricane Relief Center. Last week, that center closed, leaving some evacuees concerned that their fellow Puerto Ricans leaving the island will have a harder time finding help. Connecticut Public Radio's Ryan Karen King has more. Hartford's Hurricane Relief Center was where evacuees from Puerto Rico could come to get help. Help finding housing, jobs, winter clothing, whatever supplies or services they needed to restart their lives in Connecticut. The center closed last week, and to celebrate its work, the staff there held a dinner with traditional Puerto Rican music and food. A live band played, and volunteers served a warm meal of baked chicken and rice with peas. Juan Carlos Rodriguez joined dozens of other hurricane evacuees at the dinner to express his gratitude. He says it's because of the center that he was able to get ahead after relocating here alone from Puerto Rico. He's 23 and came here with a lot of anxiety about the move. With the Relief Center's help, he was able to find a job at Home Goods, and he's been driving for Uber on the side. Now that his life is back on track, he plans to learn English, pursue a master's degree, and apply for the police academy. Ora Alvarado helped run the Relief Center. She says there's still a lot of need. Over 20 new families came through that week. Um, this is not over. This crisis is not over. Um, the island uh, of Puerto Rico especially is not getting any better. So if things don't continue to improve, people will leave and they're going to come to Connecticut. Alvarado says the center was intended to be a temporary program run by several nonprofits and a regional education organization that had some empty space. But their lease on the building ended in February and it would cost $30,000 a month to continue to rent it money they don't have. I think we all wish we could um, open it, you know, keep it open for a long time. I know that there's still families coming. Now that the center is closed, new evacuees will be sent directly to the nonprofits that can help. But for many evacuees, the building also served as a home base where they could find emotional support and a warm meal. 80-year-old Emilio Camacho recently found an apartment in Hartford after relocating from Puerto Rico with his wife. But before then, they lived in a hotel. 
where the only food provided was a small breakfast. He says it's because of the food the center gave them that he and his wife are still alive. And now, after living through the aftermath of the hurricane the past six months, he says he's happy because they're finally settling down. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ryan Karen King in Hartford. Many of those fleeing the island are students. About 1,800 are entering the public school system of Connecticut, according to the state. Many in districts that are already struggling to serve their populations. Many others are college age, and the hurricane disrupted their higher education plans. One Connecticut university opened its doors to evacuees who wanted to take classes here in the short term. But the storm was six months ago, and many of those students have stayed on for the spring semester. As Connecticut Public Radio's Vanessa De La Torre reports, they now face big questions about their future. Do they stay or return to the island? It's lunchtime at Central Connecticut State University, and 10 students have taken over a spot in the dining hall. They start talking about the food, and it becomes pretty clear that they're not loving the rice. They say it's not as seasoned as the homemade arroz in Puerto Rico. So pizza it is. I literally eat pizza every day. That's Marivelis Acosta, a freshman at CCSU. She used to attend the University of Puerto Rico. Then came the hurricane in September, and for two weeks she didn't know if her sister was alive. Now instead of San Juan, she lives in New Britain, Connecticut. Acosta loves Puerto Rico so much that she got not one but two flags for her dorm room. She remembers how the island was like a beautiful green dot in the middle of the ocean. Now she says people are drowning in hopelessness. She hears it in their voices, like her sister's, when she calls home. Everybody's just used to it, and I can't handle that. I can't live like that. I need to secure my future and so that I can do something for myself and eventually for the people in Puerto Rico. And for now, that means finishing her education. She's joined on campus by other Puerto Rican students who came after the storm. Academically, they're doing well. But here's the thing. Their stay was supposed to be temporary. Eight intensive weeks of taking classes and earning college credits while the island recovers. CCSU called it AirBridge, a sort of goodwill program that had support from university donors. Students had their costs covered through the winter, and now they're taking out loans for the spring. Professor Sedefine Mendez helped recruit the students. I found it truly surprising that so many of them decided to stay here. At first, 22 students came over from the University of Puerto Rico. Now there are 26. Most of them are women majoring in the sciences, and they've had to adapt to doing coursework in English, their second language. Karina Lasalle does she moved back home after Christmas. She's 21 and wants to be a prosecutor someday. It was hard for my mom to know that I was going to stay here. It was, she, she was expecting me to get back in January, so she was kind of sad. With all the damage in Puerto Rico, graduating on time seems impossible there, she says. So her mom is making plans to visit her in May. That's when LaSalle will graduate with a bachelor's degree from CCSU. After that, she wants to move home. But not LaSalle's roommate, Yuandra Vasquez. She'll be graduating with a degree in biology and a minor in chemistry. Before the hurricane, the two were on the same track and field team at the University of Puerto Rico, running the 400 meters. But while LaSalle wants to go home, Vasquez is in no rush to leave. She's applying to pharmacy school in Connecticut. I wasn't prepared to stay here, but my parents told me that, uh, they always tell me that the opportunity comes and you have to take it. The evacuees say opportunity is why eight weeks have turned into several months or more. 
It also helps that they become a tight group, leaning on each other for emotional and cultural support. <laughs> Rene Rivera is one of the Airbird students. He's here at CCSU with his younger brother, his cousin Vasquez, and his girlfriend of a year, Marivelisa Costa. They all came after the hurricane. Do you think you might stay? Yeah, I think I might stay. I'm I, like, I, I like the university. I don't like the weather though. <laughs> like if I move, it's because of the weather. It's too cold here. Students say CCSU has tried hard to acclimate them to college life in the East Coast, giving them tutors and advisors. And while there's not a whole lot they can do about the seasoning on the cafeteria rice, the college did provide them with winter clothes as temperatures plummeted. In Puerto Rico, Acosta says they were used to nonstop summer. And over here, like, three jackets, a coat, two, two pants, boots, everything. But at the end of the day, it's for our own good. So I don't mind switching my sandals for boots to get my degree. So After getting that degree, Acosta isn't sure what she'll do. But one thing she's certain about is that she's not ready to go back to the island. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Vanessa De La Torre. Those stories are part of a project called The Island Next Door. We've got a link on our website, nextnewengland.org. Coming up, a battle of lobsters versus whales. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. The endangered North Atlantic right whale population took a big hit last year, with a record number killed by fishing gear entanglements and ship strikes. As Fred Bever reports, an ongoing debate over threats posed by Maine's lobster industry is gaining new urgency. Mark Baumgartner, a scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, says that to help the whales survive much longer, the rope Maine lobstermen use to tend their traps must be modified or even eliminated. And it's not just for the whale's sake. I feel the, the industry is in jeopardy. Baumgartner was in Maine this month for the annual Lobstermen's Association meeting to detail the whale's plight. If the lobster industry doesn't respond effectively, he says, the federal government will step in. As the population continues to decline and pressure is put on the government to do something about it, then they're going to turn to closures because that's all they'll have. There were about 450 North Atlantic right whales estimated to be alive in 2016. Only five calves were born last year, while there were 17 deaths caused by rope and gear entanglement or by ship strikes. Baumgartner says with no new births and another death already this year, the trend line is tipping toward the whale's effective extinction within 20 years. His warnings are getting a somewhat frosty reception from Maine lobstermen. There's uh, was a lot of deaths on the right whales this year, but none in the Gulf of Maine. Bob Williams has been hauling traps off Stonington, Maine, for more than 60 years. None of last year's dead whales were found near Maine's coast, but three were found off Cape Cod, which is part of the Gulf of Maine, where scientist Mark Baumgartner uses passive recording devices to help track their movements. This whale was traveling off the Cape in 2015. Massachusetts' already diminished lobster fishery in recent years has been closed during the height of the right whale's migrations. 
Maine lobsterman Williams says the industry here has stepped up too, adopting expensive gear required by regulators. Now, scientists are proposing new modifications, such as weaker ropes or even rope-less technology that relies on radio signals to locate traps. But Williams says those are likely unworkable off Maine. Because uh, we have heavy tides and uh, all that, and the further east you go, down towards eastern Maine, the extreme tides down there. Many fingers in Maine are pointing the blame at Canada. Canada needs to step up. Patrick Kelleher is commissioner of Maine's Department of Marine Resources. He says that while the Gulf of Maine is a known part of the Wales territory, their paths lie mostly far off Maine's coast. Meanwhile, he says, Canada's Gulf of St. Lawrence has suddenly become a killing ground. With what's going on in the Gulf of St. Lawrence right now with the, with the Canadian crab fishery, that's where most of that gear is. If you looked at the diameter of the rope, that's not Maine, Maine fishing gear. In an unusual new circumstance, most of the whales found dead last year turned up in Canada's Gulf of St. Lawrence rather than U.S. waters. Scientists conjecture the whales could be ranging more widely, following the ebb and flow of their traditional food sources or looking for new ones. Their staple is a tiny crustacean called Calanus finmarchicus, whose abundance changes with the currents and the climate. The reason whales died last year is because they were utilizing relatively new habitats where there's no protective legislation in play. Erin Meyer Gutbrod is a marine scientist at the University of California, Santa Barbara. They're facing waters that aren't protected by vessel speed reductions, fishing gear regulations, seasonal fishery closures. They don't have any of those protections because we didn't realize they were going to be there. Earlier this year, the Canadian government did impose new requirements that would be familiar to U.S. lobstermen, like strictures on floating rope and mandatory reporting of lost gear. And late last month, Canada Department of Fisheries and Oceans biologist Matthew Harding floated a new idea to skeptical fishermen in New Brunswick's growing snow crab industry. He told the CBC reporter that the government could shut down a large swath of the fishery when whales might be present, or it could take more dynamic action. Which would be smaller temporary closures that could be more uh, mobile and more tailored and specific to certain areas. Similar strategies are being explored in the U.S., but there may not be much time. Last month, the New England-based Conservation Law Foundation filed a federal lawsuit against the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration for violating the Endangered Species Act. CLF says the feds are failing to regulate Maine's lobster fishery in a way that protects the whale from extinction. CLF lawyer Emily Green says it's a vital issue for the organization's members. The majesty of this incredible species that they have been able to experience, those are moments that these people really treasure. They would experience it as a personal loss if they knew that was something they could never experience again because in their lifetime their own government had failed to protect the preservation of the species. Stakeholders in both countries are working to prop up the struggling species without sinking the lobster and crab industries. But the question now is whether legal action could hasten new fishery closures and whether that would do enough to save the whales. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine. We've had a few stories over the last few months about Vermont's agriculture industry growing bigger than its family farm roots. 
One of the biggest farm businesses in the state expanded its operations and constructed a massive manure pit in northwestern Vermont last summer without a permit or state oversight. The state's now retroactively requiring a permit for the farm expansion, but an advocate who discovered it last summer while investigating farm pollution is citing the case as evidence of lax state enforcement over large-scale dairy farming. John Dillon of Vermont Public Radio has our story. Michael Colby is a longtime farm and environmental advocate who conducted an on-the-ground investigation last summer when phosphorus pollution, much of it from agriculture, caused widespread toxic algae blooms in northern Lake Champlain and Lake Carmi in Franklin County. He says he met a local bait shop owner on Lake Carmi who pointed out a large manure pit under construction about four miles north of the polluted lake. So he asked the state agriculture agency and its federal counterparts if they knew what was going on. The answer? We have no information about that pit. And we all know what was going on last year at this time. This was ground zero of Vermont's water quality problem. This was going on and no regulatory agency had any idea about it. Colby testified before the Senate Natural Resources Committee Wednesday and he brought along video his team took last summer of the gigantic manure pit. He also provided a ream of documents he obtained under the state's public records law that shows the state's recent interactions with Pleasant Valley Farms of Franklin County. It took months and months. Beginning back in October, I first filed my FOIA request and public records request. And it wasn't until the end of February that we finally got the documents which showed exactly what was going on. And what was going on was the regulators are asleep at the wheel. The farm operation in question is owned by Amanda and Mark St. Pierre. The couple runs a half dozen farms in Franklin County, not including their latest acquisition, a farm on Skunk Hollow Road in Berkshire, which is where the expansion is happening. The Agriculture Agency has now told the St. Pierre's that they need a large farm permit for that new farm. Laura DiPietro is the agency's head of water quality. She says the agency has been on the case since it first heard from Colby last fall. It's fair to say that the agency has not stopped since we got this complaint. Every single month there has been significant correspondence, in my opinion, back and forth on this matter to try and gather the information we need to make understandable decisions about what the next steps need to be. It's actually the size of the expanded barn, not the manure pit, that the state cites when it told the St. Pierre's they needed to comply with large farm regulations. A letter sent by the state in February says they may face enforcement action for failing to file a large farm permit application for the new farm. Owner Amanda St. Pierre says they expanded the farm facilities last summer after they bought the place. The barn is now being used as a maternity facility. It houses cows that have recently given birth. There is no potential for runoff from that farm because everything is going to go into this line manure pit, which is the best that we can do for water quality. St. Pierre says Colby's organization, called Regeneration Vermont, wants to end animal agriculture in Vermont and is using their farm as part of its publicity campaign. If this group has a problem with the ag agency, that's a separate issue. But they obviously have a problem with dairy farming, and that's really the platform of which they're using. Speaking from the family, we followed everything the way that we felt we should have, following the statutes of what are in place. She's absolutely false. We are about animal agriculture in a way that is sustainable and safe 
and not threatening to the environment or taxpayers, and actually pays farmers a good price. Back at the state house, activist Michael Colby says his target is not dairy farming, but the farm pollution, which he says comes most often from confined animal operations like the St. Pierre's farms. He says part of the answer is more aggressive enforcement from the state. If, if they were really acting in the best interest of all Vermonters and not just these 30 mega farms, uh, they would have been on site and shut this facility down immediately. Colby's testimony was well received by Senator Christopher Bray, the Addison County Democrat who chairs the Natural Resources Committee. Bray says he supports the concept of citizen suits, which would allow people like Colby to bring enforcement actions on their own in court. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. It's springtime in New England, but you wouldn't know it. Four consecutive nor'easters have us wondering if the winter will ever end. And it got me thinking about Areas of Fog, a book of poems about the weather. Will Dowd wrote the book over the course of a year in the tradition of Thoreau's Walden. Each essay opens with a weather report. Many of them pay homage to great New England writers like Thoreau, Frost, and Dickinson, writers who helped to shape our spiritual understanding of a region where the weather can feel like the work of a fickle god. Will Dowd, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me, John. Why did you want to write about the weather? Well, I was uh, suffering from a bout of writer's block. It was particularly virulent strain. And I realized the brilliance and wisdom in our annoying regional habit of, when we have nothing to talk about, talking about the weather. And so I used the weather as a way out of writer's block. Um, For a year, I kept a weather journal. And each week, I would open up an essay Uh, usually the first paragraph talking, recapping the weather of the week, and then I would sort of improvise and let myself free associate and talk about what else was preoccupying me. The format of your book is kind of a weather journal, and it it draws off a lot of inspiration from from Henry David Thoreau. Tell me about about that inspiration, maybe the inspiration of some of the other uh, great writers of New England lore who have spent their time musing about the weather that we experience here. Yeah, New England has this long literary history of poets and philosophers and preachers all uh, concerned with the weather and using the weather in different ways for their own literary and philosophical ends. The central question, I think, that you find through all of them, and I'm thinking of both uh, the Puritan sermonizers, uh, Thoreau and Emerson, the transcendentalist, and then the later poets like Dickinson and Frost, the, the uh, concern with the weather that they all had was, is this sort of the, the pen of God? Is, who, you know, is the weather the creative expression of a, a, a deity? Or is it just the, the random chaos of an indifferent universe? And so uh, the weather is this really fantastic common thread that New England writers have always been able to use to wrestle with big metaphysical questions. I'd like you to read, if you could, uh, one of the essays in your book. It gets to the question of of weather in the New England psyche. It's called an unwholesome sultriness. Could, could you read that for us? Absolutely. A certain unwholesome sultriness. The first week of September brought forth a heat so biblical that we New Englanders wandered around mopping sweat from our eyes 
and confessing to uncommitted murders. Finally, a long forecast storm arrived on Saturday evening and lit blue matches in the sky. Thunder rumbled like the apneic snores of a sleeping god. That metaphor, thunder as the awful voice of God, comes straight from the Puritans. I always think of them around this time of year, when we're in the throes of late summer mugginess. I imagine them bundled up in their corsets and petticoats and capes and linen caps, and I wonder how they clung to sanity. I suppose they had their faith. Yet how much consolation did they find in their Calvinist reading of the world? According to their belief in predestination, a few select souls will spend the afterlife in unimaginable seraphic bliss while the rest are damned to hell. And here's the rub. Just who is saved and who is damned is fixed before birth, before time began, in fact. All that's left to do is to worry. To me, it seems predestined that the Puritans should have ended up in New England. Is there a better climate on earth for worrying about the state of your soul? If you can't feel God's grace, just wait five minutes. Hmm. This idea is something that we've explored on the, on the show before. I'm wondering how much you feel that the Puritans are still with us today in New England. Well, the Puritans saw the weather as this running commentary of God's mood and judgment on the state of their souls. And I think we still all subconsciously at some level subscribe to this belief because we always talk about the weather as if it's this sentient being, this kind of trickster God who could like make it rain on your outdoor wedding on a whim or hand you like a perfect beach day on, you know, the day you took a, took off work. Um, so I think it's very much still with us. Will Dowd's book of essays is called Areas of Fog. Coming up, the small town that still elects dog catchers. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Town meetings are often considered to be the pinnacle of old-school New England democracy. In New Hampshire, it's a tradition that dates back to 1633. The meetings are supposed to take place on the second Tuesday in March, as long as the weather allows it. For the second year in a row, though, New Hampshire's town meeting day in 2018 coincided with a blizzard, raising debates throughout the state about who is allowed to reschedule meetings. In fact, in Washington, New Hampshire, town officials face a corrective action plan from the state and further penalties for postponing their town meeting in defiance of state orders. Debates about topics like this are, well, exactly why town meetings exist in the first place. But not everyone agrees with their merit. That's why residents of Amherst, Massachusetts, are set to vote at the end of the month on whether or not to continue this tradition. Ben James of New England Public Radio has more. Maybe you've already seen Annihilation, the new sci-fi movie in which Natalie Portman's character steps through this oily sheen called the Shimmer into a mysterious zone. Former allies go aggro on each other, and genetic mutation occurs at an alarming rate. That's pretty much what it's like to be a voter right now in Amherst. These are dark times all across the country. Democratic institutions, democratic norms are being actively subverted, okay? And we can see this right here in Amherst. That's Art Keene, active in one of three groups trying to preserve Amherst's current form of government. 
And here's one of his opponents, Johanna Newman, head of the group Amherst for All, advocating for a new 13-member town council. The truth of the matter is that we're seeing proponents of the status quo throw all kinds of spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. And some of it evokes fear. Okay, political passions are obviously running high in this most liberal of New England towns. The government is currently composed of town meeting with 240 elected members, along with a much smaller select board and a town manager, something like a mayor but not elected. Twice a year, town meeting convenes for a multi-week session to vote on numerous issues in quick succession. Andy Churchill is a member and a strong critic of town meeting. He chaired the nine-member commission that wrote the new charter, which is up for vote March 27th. He says town meeting might work well for its members, but not for most of Amherst. It's, very, it's a black box. It's hard to navigate, hard to access, and hard to hold accountable. Churchill also argues that the intensive schedule excludes residents who can't make the night-after-night commitment. But defenders of town meeting see its 240 members as a necessary bulwark against the corruptive forces of big money and pro-development interests. John Fox is a longtime member and supporter of town meeting. I see a 13-person council, which is what is being proposed, uh, as an authoritarian body. No checks and balances. This is one of the most common arguments you'll hear against the new charter. An all-powerful council, with no pushback from an elected mayor or the current town meeting, will force through zoning changes and governmental appointments against the will of the voters. In my opinion, there are no devious forces that are trying to take over the town to do bad things here. Ellen Story served in the Massachusetts legislature for 25 years until retiring last year. She says she's distressed by the rancor she's seeing in town. I think maybe everybody is in a bad mood because we have Trump as our president. and. I think that has really put a damper on people's civic spirits uh, and made people frown uh, more than usual. Story wrote an op-ed in favor of the responsiveness and accountability an elected council would provide. She says the main power town meeting has is to say no. And we have these smart, professional staff who do serious research and then bring what they recommend to town meeting. And what town meeting has done in several occasions is say, you know, no thank you. For many charter supporters, this issue came to a head about a year ago when town meeting voted against a new school proposal, turning down $34 million from the state. Farah Amin is part of a coalition of parents of color who went to town meeting that night to argue in favor of the school proposal. She says she was blocked from speaking, and she's lost confidence town meeting will ever be representative of her. This was making a, a big difference to our kids and the way our community works. And they just called the vote. You know, it was just, it just happened in split second. Everyone was going around going, what, what just happened? Town meeting member Meg Gage voted in favor of the school proposal. In other words, she was on a mean side in that vote. But she sees grave danger in the urge to change the town's form of government. The idea that the voters are going to be more engaged, they're going to elect people who are diverse and representative in a way that's different from every other place in this state is magical thinking. It's not 
incredible. And it's astonishing to me that people aren't seeing it that way. Gage was on the commission that spent 18 months drafting the new charter, but she ultimately voted against its adoption, and she plans to vote no again on March 27th. She sees this as a moment of no return. This feels like Amherst's Brexit. People are really angry, and they're using this process to vent their anger and come up with a reaction uh, that's going to that's going to have consequences people aren't thinking through. Brexit, Trump, accountability, corruption. Like I said, political passions in Amherst are running high. After a recent public debate on the new charter, I approached a group of older women. I was pretty confident they'd oppose the charter. The general sense in Amherst is that support for town meetings skews older. But like almost everything else in this debate, that assumption didn't hold up. And you're an Amherst resident and you were... For 57 uh, or 8 years. Oh, more than that. Wait a At minute, how much is She's over 90, for heaven's sake. I came in 1950. How many years ago was that? 68 years. Right. Her name is Rhoda Honigberg, and she's a charter supporter. But she had a much bigger beef to address with me in the middle school auditorium that night. There's an undercurrent of accusation that public officials are to be bought, that there's corruption, and we can't have eight or whatever counselors that they can be bribed, and we'll have Empire State Buildings downtown Amherst. I was a town assessor for a few years, and I kept waiting for somebody to offer me a bribe, and it never happened. I hope you can picture her friends cracking up at her side. They'll all be heading to the polls to vote on the political future of a town to which they've given much of their lives. It was nice to spend a couple minutes with them. They didn't seem nearly as worried as everyone else. That's Ben James reporting from Amherst, Massachusetts. Now we'll go to Vermont's town meeting, where Amy Noyes introduces us to one of America's unique public officials. Have you ever heard the insult, he couldn't get elected dog catcher? Well, that's because we don't really elect dog catchers anymore, except in this case. It's lunch break at the annual town meeting in the small central Vermont town of Duxbury, and voters are lined up for a $5 potluck put on by the town's historical society. The first guy in line is a tall redhead with a graying beard. He's wearing a plaid shirt, wool vest, and a camel baseball hat, and everyone here knows his name. Zeb Towns, my name, short for Zebulon, uh, and I am the elected dog catcher in Duxbury. Town is truly one of a kind. Do you know if you're the only elected I am the only elected dog catcher. All the other ones are appointed. In Vermont? United States. And no one's disputing that. Town guesses he's held the post for about 15 years, although he hasn't really kept track. He gets paid $500 a year, mostly to make sure there aren't dogs running loose around town. It's a one-year term, so he gets elected at Duxbury's town meeting every year. When I first started doing it, I think it was holding up the town meeting because nobody wanted to do it. So I said, well, if it'll get us along, I did it. And plus, I had a Walker Coonhound That was always out running, so I figured if somebody picked her up, they'd have the number to call. (laughs) So it wasn't exactly a dog-eat-dog election, 
But there was one year when town faced some rough competition. And I said, good, go ahead. These are the types of calls you're going to get. And at the end of it, I was the only one that was being elected because everybody else said, we don't want that. (laughs) But that's just town barking. When it comes down to it, he really does like the job. And those calls aren't all about dogs. Yeah, lots of calls there. There's an ermine in my porch. Or there's a cat. Uh, There's these beef cows running through the woods. And none of it's really what I'm I'm here for. But it's, it's fun, interesting. Town guesses he gets 20 to 30 calls a year. And about half of them go something like this. Well, I'm just calling to let you know. You don't have to do anything, but I want you to know about it. So don't write anything up or call anybody, but this is what's going on. And all joking aside, Town takes his job seriously. It's basically like also too for the animals. You know, I have had to go and take some out of homes that were being uh, not treated correctly and been left and... um, And a few other serious calls where the same dogs were biting multiple people. You know, that's when it gets, I get serious on it pretty much. It's obvious that town cares for the animals he's elected to protect. And Duxbury resident Phyllis Berry says they like him too. And all I can say is uh, all my dogs love Zeb. So we don't have to look very far. If they get loose, they end up at his house anyway. Of course, man can't live off a dog catcher's stipend alone. Town is something of a jack-of-all-trades. He surveys land, does construction, and works at Mad River Glen Ski Area. He also produces maple syrup from his 3,500-tap sugar bush. And as for that infamous insult, saying someone couldn't get elected dog catcher, Town says it doesn't offend him. No, because I can't. I'm the only person in the country who gets elected as a dog catcher, so I'm, I'm awesome, I guess. <laughs> That's Amy Noyes of VPR reporting. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Lily Tyson. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Find more of his music at toddmerrill.com, and thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. And it's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.